breaking news from the annals of history. Gibraltar, Spain and France's failed fisticuffs. A Guadalcanal gone, Japan's sneaky retreat. Jordan jumps ship, from hoops to home runs. And in other news, the Roman Empire has declared war on the Visigoths after a heated game of chess. Those are the headlines. Remember, history is just a series of sensationalized events strung together by the whims of the powerful. News Bang, the only news source that doesn't have a sources say section. 1783. Well, we're back with more sensational news from the annals of history. It's 1783, and the American Revolutionary War is all over bar the washing up. The British have had their tea spilled by those cheeky colonial scoundrels, resulting in a resounding Yankee Doodle Dandy for the rebels. Treaty of Paris, more like treaty of taking our toys and sailing away. Meanwhile, Spain and France decide to join in on this anti-British bender, eyeing up our rocky outpost Gibraltar as if it was some sort of geographical scone. But hold your horses there, Senor Limprist. Those pesky Spaniards soon found out that taking a rock from John Bull isn't as easy as it sounds, unless you ask very nicely behind closed doors. I mean defending our strategic military stronghold against overseas. So, a sound thrashing later, and Britain still has its paw firmly on that particular piece of Iberian real estate. God save the Queen indeed. And while we're at it, God save her monkey too. 13. 1943. Explosive news from the front lines of World War II, where the Axis powers are feeling decidedly Axis-y. It's 1943, and Japan has just done a runner from Guadalcanal, a rainforest island in the Solomon Islands that is so wet it's like Niagara Falls on your trousers. Operation Key was code for, let's get out of here before they find our diary, as Japanese forces retreated faster than you can say sayonara suckers. The Allies were left scratching their heads or what was left of them after days of relentless fighting. One eyewitness, Private Numbnuts McShrapnel said, I never seen anything like it. One minute they were there, shooting at us with their Tommy guns and shouting Banzai. Next thing I know, they've buggered off with all the rations. Meanwhile, back at home base, General MacArthur wasn't impressed. We had plans for those Japs, he fumed over a glass of single malt sulfuric acid. Plans involving rusty bayonets and the collected works of Yoko Ono. But alas, it wasn't to be this time. The war raged on until 1945, when finally everyone realized it was Tuesday and agreed to call it quits. But Fatih, 1994. In a move that has left experts baffled, retired basketball superstar Michael Jordan, best known for his prowess on the court and selling overpriced trainers to impressionable teens, has signed a contract with the Chicago White Sox baseball team. The 31-year-old Jordan, who last picked up a bat in PE class at school, is set to make his debut against the San Francisco Giants tomorrow night. Baseball insiders are skeptical about Jordan's chances, but he remains defiant. I've always been good at catching things, he said today, usually when they're on fire. His airness will be playing first base, which suits him as it's nearer the dugout toilet. Fans have already started queuing outside stadiums nationwide hoping to catch a glimpse of this athletic anomaly. Said one fan, I ain't seen nothing like it since Greg Luganis tried cricket. News bang, poking holes in the balloon of bullshit. 
Here's Shakanaka Giles with tonight's weather report. He'll take you on a meteorological tour across the British Isles, painting a picture of tomorrow's climate in his own inimitable style. Ah, tomorrow's weather, starting in the southeast, where it'll be a bit like a cat's bath, damp and unpleasant. A fine drizzle, as if the sky's weeping over the end of winter. Moving on to the Midlands, where it'll be a bit like a wet weekend in a caravan. Cloudy and damp, with a chance of rain, about as likely as a politician's promise. In the north, it'll be a bit like a penguin's birthday party, cold and icy, with a chance of snow, about as likely as a snowball's chance in hell. And uh, finally, in Scotland, it'll be a bit like a polar bear's picnic. Bitterly cold, with a chance of snow, about as likely as a polar bear at a picnic. In summary then, a bit of a, a damp squib, a bit of a wet weekend, a bit of a snowball's chance, and a bit of a polar bear's picnic. And that's all the weather. A 2014. The year is 2014 and a damning report by the UN has exposed egregious human rights violations in North Korea. The investigation, commissioned by the UN Human Rights Council, unveiled a systemic pattern of abuse spanning the entire nation. As the world grapples with the implications of these findings, we turn to our correspondent Brian Bastable for further insight. From a hut of bones on the very edge of madness, I send you this missive. A new day is breaking in the war zone that is North Korea. A world apart from the safety and security of 2014 when first these words were written by UN investigators, casting light into the darkest corners of this tormented land. As I sit here now with a hot mug of freshly brewed camel urine and bullets zinging through my ears like earwigs feasting on last night's takeaway pizza crusts, we hear again those horrifying stories told back then to an unbelieving world by exiles forced to flee this living hellhole where freedom is but a word without meaning or power to heal. My mission today is not just one more tale of woe and sorrow as we continue our endless trek through human tragedy in all its many guises, but also serves as your personal window onto life inside what must be humanity's cruelest regime, North Korea 2024. We know from those early reports that political prison camps litter this forsaken land like minefields waiting for unwary travelers who stray too far off their preordained paths into territory patrolled by men whose only purpose seems to be keeping others down at any cost, even if it means death itself. Today I stand amidst such desolation. Shattered dreams lie scattered around me like so much broken glass reflecting images too terrible to contemplate, yet impossible to ignore once seen through tear-filled eyes burning with rage against injustice so obscene it defies comprehension. But still we try, because sometimes hope survives even here. Just enough perhaps for us all someday soon, Brian Bastable reporting live from North Korea 2024. Good night. 
1995. In a dramatic turn of events, Ramzi Youssef, a convicted terrorist linked to the 1993 World Trade Center bombing and the bombing of Philippine Airlines Flight 434, was apprehended in Islamabad, Pakistan. The 1993 World Trade Center attack claimed six innocent lives and left countless others injured. Miraculously, the Philippine Airlines Flight 434 pilot managed to execute a safe landing despite the aircraft's damage. Islamabad, the capital city of Pakistan, became the stage for this unfolding international drama. For more on this unfolding story, we turn to our terrorism correspondent Ken Shit. Good evening, degenerates. As we travel back to the distant year of 1995, let's take a moment to remember the time when terror struck the heart of New York City and the skies above the Philippines. Ramzi Youssef, a twisted piece of human garbage, was arrested in Islamabad, Pakistan for his involvement in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing and the bombing of Philippine Airlines Flight 434. This man, this monster, was responsible for the deaths of six innocent souls in New York and the damage of a Philippine Airlines plane. Youssef was a coward, hiding behind his religion and his twisted beliefs, while innocent people paid the price for his actions. He was a parasite, feeding off the fear and despair of others, and he had to be stopped. And stop him we did. Thanks to the tireless efforts of law enforcement agencies around the world, Ramzi Youssef was brought to justice. He was arrested in Islamabad, the capital city of Pakistan, and sentenced to life in prison. But Youssef's actions serve as a reminder that terrorism is a disease that knows no borders. It's a disease that infects the minds of men and women, turning them into monsters. And it's a disease that we must fight with everything we have. This is Ken Shit, reminding you that we will never back down in the face of terror. We will never let fear win, and we will never forget the innocent lives lost to the likes of Ramzi Youssef. 1992. The Maastricht Treaty, the cornerstone of the European Union, was inked in 1992. This treaty, a veritable treasure trove of shared citizenship, single currency, and common foreign and security policies, laid the groundwork for the EU as we know it today. The European community sprouted from this agreement, eventually metamorphosing into the EU we're all too familiar with. The EU is a curious amalgamation of federation and confederation comprising 27 member states in Europe. Hardeman Pesto has more on this tale of integration and unity. Martin, I'm here in the charming Dutch city of Maastricht, where history is being made today. Representatives from all 12 EC member states have gathered to sign the treaty that will create a new European superstate. What exactly does this treaty do, Pesto? Well, Martin, in simple terms, it turns the European community into a fully-fledged political union called the European Union. It also establishes a single European currency, the euro, as well as shared foreign and defence policies. And how are member states reacting to having their sovereignty signed away? Well, there were some concerns early on from Britain about losing too much sovereignty, but they secured an opt-out from the single currency. So spirits are high here today. An opt-out? You mean they get to choose whether or not to participate in core aspects of this new union? Ah, yes. Well, there are some special arrangements for certain countries, but the other 11 are fully on board. Special arrangements? You mean exceptions to the rules? So there's one set of rules for some and another set for others? 
It's just on certain limited issues to respect national sensitivities. The UK and Denmark don't have to join the euro. And what about common defence and foreign policy? Can they opt out of that too, if the mood takes them? Or do they want special treatment there as well? Well, I believe there's a special protocol for Denmark on defence, allowing them to remain outside the EU structure. So just to be clear, this new union allows members to pick and choose which bits they want to be part of. Some join the currency, some don't. Some link their foreign policies, some go their own way. Some share an army, some sit on the sidelines. In what sense is it a union? Sounds more like an a la carte menu. Well, I'm sure the fine print will iron out any inconsistencies. Pesto, it sounds like a dog's dinner. Are you telling me the birth certificate of this new union is already riddled with fudges and compromises? Mark my words, it will come back to bite them one day. What do the citizens of Europe think about their leaders stitching together this patchwork quilt of a treaty? Have you asked anyone? Well, no, I haven't actually had the chance to take the temperature on the streets here. Why am I not surprised? Pesto, the party's over before it's begun. You're supposed to be a journalist, not a cheerleader. This is a historic treaty and you can't even be bothered to speak to the people it affects. Do some journalism for goodness sake. Absolutely, Martin. I will get right on that. Don't tell me. Tell the people of Europe. Honestly, I should send you packing. Audacious in 1900. In a bizarre twist of fate, the bubonic plague, a scourge thought to be consigned to the annals of history, has resurfaced in San Francisco. The year is 1900 and the disease which presents with flu-like symptoms, swollen lymph nodes and acral necrosis has claimed 119 lives. The initial denial by California's governor Henry Gage has raised eyebrows given his apparent motivation to protect business interests. However, federal authorities have since confirmed the outbreak. As we tread cautiously into the new millennium, we are reminded that some foes remain eternal. Joining me now to discuss this alarming development is our correspondent Melody Wintergreen. San Francisco, the year 1900, and the city is in the grip of a silent stalker, the bubonic plague. In the bustling streets where East meets West, one Chinese immigrant's feverish shivers mark the beginning of an epidemic that would see bodies piling up faster than fortunes in this gold rush town. Governor Henry Gage, with an eye on commerce over corpses, denies the dark whispers of death, fearing trade would tumble with each toll of the plague bell. But as swollen lymph nodes become as common as sourdough loaves in this city by the bay, federal forces step in to unveil the ugly truth. Enter doctor. Rupert Blue, a man whose name is as cool as his determination to douse the flames of this fevered outbreak. With quarantine quarters tighter than Alcatraz and rat-killing campaigns that would make a Pied Piper wince, San Francisco streets are scrubbed clean from pestilence and paranoia. By 1904, after four years of fear and a tally of 121 cases with 119 souls lost to this medieval marauder, the plague's curtain falls. The Golden Gate City breathes free once more, saved not by gold but by gutsy governance and gallant medical grit. And so ends the tale of how San Francisco faced down the Black Death and refused to let it claim its golden dream. News bang, sifting through the ashes of misinformation. Ryder Boff reports on Michael Jordan's foray into baseball and Neil Harvey's historic cricketing achievement. A young Australian batsman scores a century in test cricket. 
while a basketball legend tries his hand at America's pastime. Ah, the year is 1994, and what a sight for sore eyes it was when Michael Jordan, the high-flying basketball maestro of the Chicago Bulls, decided to swap his sneakers for cleats. Yes, indeed. The man who soared through the air with the greatest of ease signed on the dotted line to play baseball for the Chicago White Sox. It's as if Michelangelo put down his paintbrush to take up juggling chainsaws. The sporting world watched with bated breath as MJ attempted to hit home runs instead of slam dunks. Uh, Jordan at bat, he swings and it's a miss, a swing and a miss again. He's striking out more than a lovelorn teenager at a school dance. But wait, he connects. It's going, going, caught by an outfielder reading War and Peace. Now let's wind back even further to 1948, where Neil Harvey, fresh-faced and sprightly as a spring lamb, became the youngest Australian cricketer to score a century in Test cricket, a feat akin to finding an enjoyable conversation with one's ex-wife at a family barbecue. And there's young Neil Harvey wielding his willow-like Excalibur itself. The bowlers are hurling leather missiles towards him, but alas, he dispatches them with all the grace of Fred Astaire tap-dancing around landmines. Harvey's blade carved through bowling attacks much like my attempts at carving Sunday roasts post-divorce. Unorthodox, but effective. In personal news from that era, I recall my own brush with cricketing greatness when I mistakenly wandered into Lord's Cricket Ground thinking it was an elaborate pet shop due to all talk of ducks and rabbits. Never did find that parrot I was promised. So there we have it. Two titans from different decades showing us that time is just a number on their jerseys or perhaps etched into their wooden bats or engraved onto their Air Jordans. This has been Ryder Boff taking you on another whirlwind tour through history's sporting almanac. A 2014. And now, Calamity Prenderville with an astonishing tale from Britain's past. Discover how our hominid forebears left their ancient footprints on the shores of Norfolk. Good evening, dear Newsbang viewers. It's your favourite time-travelling techno presenter, Calamity Prenderville, here to bring you a whopper of a story from the annals of British history. Buckle up, because we're going back to 2014, when our clever clogs made a shocking discovery in the sandy soils of Norfolk. Now, I know what you're thinking. Norfolk? Surely that's just where they keep all the tractors and Alan Partridge. Well, think again, my friend. This sleepy little corner of East Anglia has been hiding a secret that would make even Indiana Jones green with envy. Researchers stumbled upon some rather peculiar footprints on the beach. Now, these weren't your run-of-the-mill footprints left by the local nudist colony or an overzealous dog walker. Oh no! These were the oldest known hominid footprints outside of Africa, dating back over 800,000 years. That's right, we're talking about our hairy ancestors traipsing around in what is now England before humans even existed. The footprints were captured in 3D before being cruelly snatched away by the unforgiving tide. But fear not! Our plucky researchers managed to document these ancient steps before they disappeared into the murky depths. So there you have it. British innovation strikes again. 
Who knew that beneath all those tractors and Alan Partridge, there was a hidden treasure trove of hominid history? I guess it just goes to show that sometimes you have to look beyond the surface to find something truly extraordinary. And remember, if it's not British, it probably doesn't exist. Keep watching Newsbang for more mind-blowing stories from Britain's illustrious past. This is Calamity Prenderville, signing off from my ridiculous 1980s-style Newsbang Science Watch segment. Newsbang, poking holes in the balloon of lies. And now, here's Sandy O'Shaughnessy with a look at historical events and a touch of humour. It's nice and easy. Ah, and a hearty hello to all you lovely folks tuning in this fine evening. It's your old pal Sandy O'Shaughnessy here, taking over the airwaves for a wee bit of historical banter. So sit back, relax, and let's take a little trip down memory lane, shall we? Ah. <laughs> now let's skip back to the year 1999. Ah, the turn of the millennium. A time of Y2K fears, boy bands, and of course, the crowning of Abdullah II as the King of Jordan. The young chap succeeded his father, King Hussein, becoming the latest in a long line of Hashemite rulers. You see, the Hashemites have been running the show in Jordan since 1921. Ah. <laughs> and if that's not impressive enough, they've also had a hand in ruling the kingdoms of Hejaz, Syria and Iraq. Quite the family business, wouldn't you say? Ah. <laughs> now, speaking of family businesses, I received a letter from Mrs. O'Leary in Kilkenny. She writes, Dear Sandy, my husband started a business selling inflatable leprechauns. I'm not sure if it's a stroke of genius or a sign of madness. Well, Mrs. O'Leary, I'd say it's a bit of both. But who knows, maybe your husband's onto something. After all, the Hashemites have been ruling for nearly a century. Ah. <laughs> now let's hop back a bit further, all the way to 457. That's right, folks, we're going back to the days of chariots and togas. Leo III, also known as the Thracian, was crowned Byzantine Emperor. Now, the Byzantine Empire was quite the powerhouse, the continuation of the Roman Empire and the most powerful economic, cultural and military force in the Mediterranean world. Leo ruled for nearly two decades, leaving quite the legacy. <laughs> and speaking of legacies, I got a letter from young Sean in Limerick. He writes, Dear Sandy, my granddad left me his old record collection. It's full of songs from the 60s and 70s. Any advice on what to do with it? Well, Sean, I'd say hold on to those records. You never know. They might just be your ticket to a musical empire. Ah. <laughs> you know, it's funny how history repeats itself. From the Hashemites to the Byzantines and from inflatable leprechauns to old record collections, it seems like we're all just trying to leave our mark on the world. Ah. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> So keep those letters coming, folks. And until next time, this is Sandy O'Shaughnessy, signing off with a hearty, see you later, alligator, in a while, crocodile. And in a stunning turn of events, Steve Jobs, the co-founder of Apple Inc., has returned to the company after acquiring his startup, Next. Established in 1985, Next was a trailblazing technology firm that focused on computer workstations, despite limited sales. 
its object-oriented programming and graphical user interface, have left indelible marks on the world of computing. Perkins Stornoway now delves into the intricacies of this corporate saga. The stock market was wild today. Steve Jobs, the co-founder of Apple Inc., returned to the company after the acquisition of his startup, Next. Next was a technology company founded by Jobs in 1985, specializing in computer workstations. Despite limited sales, Next's object-oriented programming and graphical user interface were influential in computer innovation. Shannon, occasionally rough, in 2005, the redenomination of Azerbaijani manat was a reform of Azerbaijan's national currency, equating one new manat to 5,000 old manats. It was conducted in 2006 by President Ilham Aliyev. The older banknotes ceased circulation in 2007, but can still be exchanged by the Central Bank of Azerbaijan. On the foreign exchanges, the pound fell sharply against the Azerbaijani manat. Trafalgar West backing southwest, 5 or 6. Apple's stocks plummeted, dropping 2.4 points on the Nasdaq. Fair Isle, fair, occasionally poor. The Azerbaijani government has recently imposed strict regulations on foreign currency trading. Rockall, West or Northwest, 3 or 4. Azerbaijan, Dogger, veering southeast, occasionally moderate. A significant drawback for the Azerbaijani economy, Lundi, rain later. In summary, it's a tumultuous day for international business, with Steve Jobs returning to Apple, the Azerbaijani Manat's redenomination, and currency fluctuations. Thames, fair, occasionally moderate. It's anyone's guess how these events will impact the market. But it's a stormy day with no end in sight. A 1940s. In a dazzling display of artistic prowess, Walt Disney's groundbreaking animated feature, Pinocchio, captured hearts and accolades upon its debut in 1940. The wooden puppet's earnest quest to become a real boy enthralled audiences at New York City's now-defunct Center Theatre in Rockefeller Center. Pinocchio earned Walt Disney a record-breaking Academy Award further solidifying his status as an animation pioneer. Now, to delve deeper into the intriguing tale of Pinocchio and its creator, we turn to our culture correspondent, Smithsonian Moss. Now at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Whoa-ho, my culture vultures! It's your high-flying, wise-cracking, trend-tapping reporter, Smithsonian Moss, and I'm here to take you on a magic carpet ride back to 1940. So strap on your nostalgia goggles, because we're diving headfirst into the golden age of animation. Now, picture this. New York City, 1940, and the air is as electric as my grandma's shock therapy. The center theater is buzzing like a beehive on steroids, because tonight... They're rolling out the red carpet for a little wooden boy who's about to make history, Pinocchio. Walt Disney, that wizard of whimsy, that sultan of sentimentality, has done it again. He's whipped up a flick so enchanting, it's got grown men crying into their popcorn and wishing upon stars like they're going out of style. Pinocchio, folks. It's not just a movie, it's a freaking cultural tsunami. It's got everything— 
singing crickets, villainous foxes, and a wail of a climax that's more intense than my last Tinder date. And let's not forget that nose. It's longer than the line at the ladies' room during intermission. But here's the kicker. Pinocchio didn't just waltz into the hearts of America. Oh no. It foxtrotted its way to the Academy Awards and snagged itself an Oscar. That's right. The first animated feature to do so. And let me tell you, the competition was stiffer than a corpse in a freezer. And Walt Disney, that maestro of the mouse, he's racking up Oscars like they're going out of fashion. The man's got more gold than Fort Knox, and a Midas touch that turns celluloid into pure, unadulterated joy. So let's raise a glass to Pinocchio, the little puppet who could, and to Walt Disney, the dreamer who did. Because tonight, in the heart of the Big Apple, a star is born, and his name is Pinocchio. That's all from me, Smithsonian Moss, your cultural compass in this topsy-turvy world. Stay tuned for more hijinks in history, because when it comes to culture, I've got you covered like a Snuggie on a snow day. News Bang. Unraveling the knot of misinformation one thread at a time. And now it's time for a final look at tomorrow's headlines. The Times. Eastern Airlines flight, 663 crashes into Atlantic after near miss. There's a photo there of a plane flying over the ocean. The Telegraph, Fotheringhay Castle sees end of Mary, Queen of Scots. There's a picture there of a castle. The Express, Richard Mentor Johnson's unique vice presidency. There's a photo there of a man with a beard. And finally, the Mirror, Mary, Queen of Scots loses her head. There's a cartoon there of a woman with no head. That's it. On the day that a man who was being chased by a lion in a zoo in Johannesburg, South Africa, was saved by a monkey who threw a banana at the lion. The man was later arrested for feeding the monkey. Good night. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night. Thank you.